Hello and welcome to The 40 Minute Mentor with me, your host, James Mitra. Here at JBM, we think one of the best things you can do for your career is to find a great mentor who you can learn from and be inspired by. So for those of you who are looking for this mentorship, we launched this podcast. In each episode, we'll be sharing career stories, advice and mentorship from some of the most inspiring people we know. And we hope that you can apply some of these learnings to your life and career. I'm always keen to get feedback, so if you have any thoughts once you've listened to this interview, just drop me a line at james at jbmc.co.uk. In today's episode of The 40 Minute Mentor, I get the privilege of speaking to two inspiring mentors, Ina Kajaya and Maggie Brereton of EOS Deal Advisory. Following successful careers as senior partners within KPMG's deal advisory business, Ina and Maggie took the bold decision to leave with the determination to shake up their industry, which is known for its macho culture, long hours, and a shocking gender pay gap. To do this, they launched EOS, a diverse, tech-driven deal advisory consultancy that has grown to a team of over 15 and has an enviable client list, all within a matter of months. It's not every day that I get to talk to such impressive leaders that have reached the top of the big four and then taken the bold leap to start a business from scratch. It was really fascinating to hear Ina and Maggie's stories and learn more about their experience and how they're striving to do things differently at EOS. Having started the business less than 12 months ago, today's conversation focuses on the highs and lows of launching your own business, including the initial challenges they faced in the early months of EOS and how they were able to overcome them, why they decided to start EOS together as equal partners and how this influenced the way they work and the way they're building the business and the importance of culture and diversity and how EOS are actively trying to create a business that is different to the bigger consultancies. Ina and Maggie were fantastic 40-minute mentors and it was an absolute pleasure to dive into their careers and hear more about the vision they have for EOS. There's something in this episode for everyone whether you're currently working in a consultancy and want to understand how you can progress your career, or perhaps you're contemplating starting your own professional services firm. This episode is packed with great advice and life lessons from two genuine trailblazers who are truly disrupting their industry. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the incredible Ina Kajaya and Maggie Brereton. Ina, Maggie, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. Thank you both so much for being here. I'm sorry we can't be doing this face to face, but uh, the pandemic doesn't allow it. So we will make do with a, a virtual 40 Minute Mentor recording. I thought we could kick this off as we always like to on the 40 Minute Mentor with a 30 second overview of your CV. So I don't know who wants to go first. Should we start with Maggie? Uh, yeah, sure. So hi, uh, Maggie Breton. I... Oh, 30 seconds, 20 years of deals, actually chartered accountant trained, did a bit of fraud investigation, then found deals and stuck with deals. So mainly do in-deal work, uh, diligence, synergies, and just helping getting the deal done. Amazing. That was probably one of the first people to, to get it in, uh, in under 30 seconds. <laughs> um, <laughs> Ina, do you mind uh, telling our listeners a bit about your 30-second CV? Sure. Ina Care, also as Maggie, uh, more than 20 years doing deals. Specialist in integrations and carve-outs, and I'm the one who gets stuck for a long, long time after a deal is done, actually getting it done. <laughs> so very complementary to Maggie's skills. Uh, spent more than 20 years in a big four and started EO six months ago. 
Wonderful. Great stuff. Well, there's plenty for us to discuss over the course of this conversation. And we do obviously want to spend a lot of time talking about your own business, uh, your steel advisory. And uh, so we'll dig into that later. But um, you both spent the majority of your career at, at the big four. So can you tell us a bit about the journey that you took from that kind of early career right through to becoming a partner? What were some of the highlights from that that, that career journey? Do you want to go first, Dina? I can start. Well, my journey is a very international one. I actually started as a graduate in Paris many years ago in consulting. So at that point, you just came into consulting. We didn't know too much what you're going to end up doing. So I started yeah, many years ago as a graduate and then made my way up. I found out deals about two or three years within my journey. And when I first did my integration, which I think was around the 2000. I never could let deals go anymore. So I lived eight years in France out of, I think, six was at KPMG. Then I went to Denmark, where I spent five years when we moved as a family. I did a year in Germany while I lived in Denmark. So I would uh, commute every year. Then I went to the UK for four years, then to Brazil for three years, and then back in the UK at uh, my last years at KPMG. So a very international one. I got stuck into deals quite early in my career. So I have experienced both in the beginning doing integrations and actually operationally delivering them, but also on the FDD side. So doing financial DDs in the beginning, which I barely can remember, but because <laughs> <laughs> those are the days that the data rooms were still real data rooms where you have to go and look at papers. But uh, yeah, so a very international career throughout. And what, what was it out of interest that, that you enjoyed so much about deals? Because you clearly, you found it fairly early and have, have, have stuck with it for a while. I think they're very exciting. They're compli- very complicated problems to solve because there are so many pieces of the equations between the systems, the people, the numbers and everything. Try, you try to, to make something such complex work. And there's the adrenaline of getting a deal signed, of, of, of getting through, of going there and actually work within companies, working with people to change companies. I quite enjoy that. And I quite enjoy the change, which means you're doing different things. Uh, the, your projects constantly change too. So you've you got to like the change. And I also like the, how global it was. You know, I worked with clients, God name the country I've been doing projects. And, and I really like the culture aspect of working with different countries. And Maggie, what about you? Tell us a bit about your career story at KPMG. What were the, what were the highlights for you? Mine was an equally glamorous start because I, I started my training in Leeds in Yorkshire. So, um, I went to uni in Leeds. I love Leeds. Oh <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, no, so I, um, I actually trained. I came out of university, had six months on the dole and came under quite severe pressure to go find a job. And... Um, and, and actually then signed up to do the training for chartered accountancy. Um, so I'm actually a qualified chartered accountant and started an audit, as you did in those days. But after three years, I'd probably had enough of audit, although it did teach me a lot of good basics around looking and investigating the company. And then I moved over actually to KPMG and uh, joined their forensic team. So did a lot of fraud investigations, which were really good fun, actually, and often involved quite a lot of scandal. But then actually, I did want to get more into the commercial world and joined a relatively new department then called Transaction Services. And that was doing deals. And that was brilliant. And like Ina says, it's like 
having to figure out really complicated puzzles and trying to understand the business, how a business works, how the culture in that business works. And that, you know, drives a lot of reasoning for the actions that sometimes feel a little illogical. Um, and so that's that's quite an exciting thing to go and do. And so I just got stuck doing that for, I thought oh, I'll give it, you know, I'll do three years. I've done three years of audit, three years of fraud investigations. I'll do this for three years and then never changed, never got bored. And then came down to London, which is my international travel. So left the Republic of Yorkshire and came to, <laughs> to London, oh gosh, like 16 years ago, came for a one year secondment. And I hate to say this as a northerner, but really, really liked London. And so, yeah, just stayed. And the deals... Uh, I got into then where the sort of more larger, more complex global deals. So takeover of listed companies or defense of listed companies. And I like getting thrown into those situations where you just think, wow, I have no idea how to do this. But then you kind of figure it out as a team and pretty much, yeah, always seem to exceed where we thought we could get to. And that's a really great feeling. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I can totally see the appeal of the the complexity, the variety, the, the, the challenge and the high profile nature, I guess, of a lot of the, the projects you will have worked on over the years. And it, it's no secret that getting to partner level in a, in a big four consultancy or big four firm is, is certainly not an easy task. And you both did it. Lots of people that I know over the years have, have, have strived for that. So what did you find were the kind of biggest challenges over that while you were kind of getting to that point and what advice would you give to anyone that's listening to this that might be in a big four or consultancy that's striving to become a partner i think the interesting piece of that is that i speak just for myself maggie maggie was different i never actually aimed to be a partner it was not like a plan where i'm going to do this and then i'm going to become a partner and and that's that's the plan to get there especially having moved so many times you think you're going to end up lost somewhere because you're always kind of starting so that was not a goal in itself. And I think that's probably was quite important into getting to a partner because I think when your sole goal is becoming a partner, you probably lose yourself in actually what you should be doing. When I think about what, what a partner is, and I guess people can do whole essays on it, I think there is, uh, and Megan and I have spent quite a time thinking about uh, that, I think it's it's about three things. And if anybody's trying to become a partner, I would focus on those three things as they go. And the first one is for me is market relevance. What's your market expertise? How does the market see you? How Which client relationships do you have? What presence in the market do you have? Because that's going to be make a major difference in your ability to actually sell as you become a partner. Uh, the second one is the ability to actually build a sustainable business. So you're not just building something which is the flavor of the month type of projects we're selling and then there is no continuity to it. So how can you actually build a business that grows within time? And that can be a sector expertise or, or a capability. It doesn't matter what it is, but how does how sustainable is that business that you're creating? And finally, the third one for me is the capability of training people under you because this is not a solo play partnerships about teams and how you build them and, and, and how you grow them not just in numbers but as as a team so if you are very incapable of training a team behind you or not having the people that can train the team behind you you will struggle as a partner but the interesting thing advice. also 
and I'll, I'll let Maggie compliment it, is that when you get into the partnership, then you find out there's a whole hierarchy inside the partnership. <laughs> partnership is just the first little You start step. at the bottom all over again, yeah, in many ways, yeah, don't you? A whole new ladder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Maggie, yeah, well, that's it's great advice, you know, and I think there are lots of people listening that will, will benefit from that. So you do hear of those that get quite tunnel vision. I've, I, that's all I want. I want to become a partner. And all they focus on is maybe selling and they don't necessarily think or or continue to work on those other, other elements. So that's, that's great advice. Maggie, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's right. And like you know, said, we spent a lot of time thinking about this and, you know, for, for the work in EOS. And actually, I was having a drink with somebody, obviously, a couple of months ago now. And they would, I asked them why they were moving firm. And he said, I'm moving because they'll make me a partner. And I thought, gosh, that is, that is some statement to make. And it's become this, it seems to have become this really big thing. And I think people losing perspective on actually what do they really want out of their jobs on a sort of day-to-day basis and their development and their learning and their path and having all of those elements in there so the market the people and and the teams uh, and what have you so it is a difficult path but I think more and more people have to think about what it means to them and just get away from what seems to have happened around this sort of status thing that it does become quite people's real main goal and without really understanding probably a slightly deeper reasoning behind it. And and I agree with Eno. I mean, I remember you can't underestimate how much sponsorship you need in these partnerships to become partner because you are being let, as they used to say to us, let into a very exclusive club. And I always thought, well, if any club would have me as a member, you know, that old saying, <laughs> there's not a club you want to be part of. But anyway, but you, you do need sponsorship and it can seem very unfair and it is probably very unfair. But if you don't have that sponsorship, almost whatever you do will not be good enough. Uh, and that I found to be a real harsh reality of getting to be a partner. I remember one guy, he was pretty adamant I would never be a partner and then I remember a FTSE 100 CEO ringing up and asking for me because he wanted to see me. And this guy was so impressed. That kind of changed his mind a little bit about me. But until this guy changed his mind about me, I was never going to get on that partner list. So yeah, it was, it's so interesting. you know, when I look back on it, it's so stupid. But that was the reality. Yeah, it reminds me, I spent the start of my career at a corporate recruitment firm and uh, learned lots, but I was told always I wasn't very good at business development. And it was all, you're great with clients, you're good at placing people in jobs, but you, when do you, you don't go out and, you know, hunt down new business. But you, I, and I used to have this, this thing in my head, this imposter syndrome when I set up my own business and, and realized quite quickly it was what I was absolutely best at doing was bringing on new clients. But, but um, sometimes you need to escape that world to, to really realize it and i guess that brings us on nicely to having spent you know all your careers in 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 these corporate businesses and achieved huge success it can't have been an easy decision to venture out on your own so can you tell our listeners a a bit about what made you make that leap and and you know consider that you know considering the the risks that were involved yeah yeah it's um i mean people say you know what was the hardest thing about setting up eos and doing eos and it's probably leaving kpmg and making that decision because, yeah, 20, both of us, 20 plus years, you know, good careers there, lots of friends, lots of colleagues, been, you know, relatively successful in our careers there. It was a huge decision. I mean, the actual reasoning why actually came out in, in the papers, not to, 
not uh, not through our choice but you know it's it, as a point of principle we came to a to a place where actually we felt we had to leave and the, yeah very difficult decision however having made that decision i mean i personally have never spent not even one moment regretting it or thinking that that was the wrong decision so it, it was it was very difficult and it took me slightly longer than Nina to get over that thought process but you know that's the point and it, it, it is and anybody making big career decisions it is a real personal journey and you have to it is you, yours and your career so it is your decision it shouldn't be anybody else's and you kind of have to go on that journey on your own however much advice and all the rest of it you get around it it is your journey and I think, as, as Maggie said, and, and we told the story in one of the talks uh, we did uh, for uh, for MBA students, but I, I'll repeat it here because it's quite an important one, is that I was watching uh, some kind of uh, video by Will Smith where he talks about fear, right? And he talks about he was going to jump from an airplane parachute, which was his biggest fear. And he said... He suffered with it the whole day before, the whole week before, and he was dying of fear just before he jumped. And and then he actually tells that they tell you they're going to do one, two, three, and then, and then you have to jump on three. And actually they push you on two because on three you will hold, right? Such is your fear. But then as he jumped and he was free falling with no parachute because the parachute you haven't, haven't opened yet, he had no fear. And I think we felt exactly the same. We felt so much fear while taking that decision to leave and and, and what it meant for our lives, for our careers, and for the people that we, we liked so much of leaving our teams, which is probably the hardest thing. But when we made that decision and, and then decided to create EOS, because those were two different, they happened in two different time uh, points, then you're free falling. We had nothing, right? But we were fine. Because you already had jumped. As you jump, you're not afraid anymore. You're actually free falling, but you're not afraid anymore. And that image always stuck to me because that's exactly how we felt. That's, yeah, ama- amazing advice. And I, I don't think anyone's quoted Will Smith on this podcast before. So as a big Will Smith fan, <laughs> that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's brilliant <laughs> for me. But no, I, I totally agree. And I, I think, it, and we won't go on to, into the specifics, but, you know, the fact you both left for, you know, as, as point of principle and then took that plunge. I, I, I strongly believe fortune favours the brave. And um, and it's, it's great to see what a success the business has become in a very short period of time. I've heard there's an interesting story behind the name. So EOS. So could you tell a bit of a, uh, you know, what the backstory behind that is, and what does that mean to you personally? Maggie, I think you should do it because you you came from you. Well, yeah. So well, yes, yeah, sort of. Um, we were um, <laughs> well, we were trying to think, and actually, it got to a point where this was like one of the hardest decisions. I mean, it shouldn't be that hard to think of a company name, but when you start to try and do it, it's, it is really hard. And if you think where we came from, so like all the big four and many others are all named after their founders. But we were incredibly keen that this was not Maggie and Ina do deals dot com because it's not about us. It is about, you know, building out EOS into into something bigger than just the two of us. And so we definitely didn't want to use our names. And we were thinking about it. And actually it was some of the books that I was reading at the time. And we thought about we really wanted a sort of more feminine name because, again, we are in a very male dominated. And I think all the founders for all the other firms uh, are male. And so we actually came up with Eos, which is the uh, Greek goddess of the dawn. 
that seemed Amazing. pretty appropriate. Good stuff. Good stuff. I, I must admit, it's one of the hardest things to do, come up with a, a name. And I, I set up my, I did a year of consulting before I set JBM up. So I just set up, I did, took my initials. I'm in that category of lazy, uncreative, you know, <laughs> so, and it's just kind of stuck. But um, I think EOS is fantastic. <laughs> so thinking back to, to those kind of early days, those first few weeks and months, I know from being a, a founder myself, how challenging that can be. And I can't imagine it will be smooth sailing for, for you both, despite your you know successful careers so so can you tell our our listeners a little bit about some of those challenges in the early days how you overcame them or how you approach them i think one of the things that kept us going as we started is that we felt again i don't don't want to sound negative we felt we already had lost everything we had right so we had nothing else to lose absolutely nothing else to lose which then liberated us to try anything. Do you know what I mean? We would say there is no bad meeting. We are learning here. And also to admit, which was probably one of the hardest things, that it's okay to make mistakes because we were making them one after the other constant we probably still are. Because when you come from an environment of a big forward, a very corporate environment, your biggest fear is to make a mistake in front of everybody. You don't. You become risk aware or you try to risk manage yourself at all times to not make any mistakes because you get absolutely crucified for those mistakes. And we had the liberation of saying, you know what, have nothing to lose here. So it's okay to make a mistake. But then just the learning of it is pick yourself up and say, I'm really sorry, I didn't mean to and move on because we never set up a company before. We never ran a company before, right? We are not in the, let's say, we're not the typical founders, 25 male, out of college type of people, right? We come from, we're very different from a typical startup founder. So we don't fit the typical description anyway. So I think we went, well, we'll make mistakes as we go. And we do, and we still do. But we we pick ourselves up and say, look, lesson learned, what a good lesson learned, move on. Because otherwise you get stuck on, oh God, I messed this up. Oh, then you're kind of done on a startup because you're messing up every day. It's just yeah. a given. No, that's great advice. To be fair as well, you know, I mean, yeah, never done it or even thought about doing it before really. It wasn't actually as hard as what you think it would be because, I mean, as always with everything in life, it's a bit about timing and a bit of luck and all the rest of it. But, you know, obviously getting some backers and some funding was the critical aspect. And we were very lucky to be introduced to to um, Tony and Cristobal, who are uh, founders of NIE, which is a Spanish uh, consultancy in telecoms and digital. And they left a, a consultancy, a large consultancy, 10, 15 years ago. So they had really great empathy with us. So that was, you know, that's that's a pretty good set of funders, a set, first set of funders to find. But then, you know, finding an office, that was that was good fun, actually. I was like... Uh, searching for a house or something so you know you find the people who <laughs> and i've been to your offices, offices. beautiful <laughs> yeah oh yeah thanks yeah yeah so but, but when we found those offices we were like oh gosh yeah these these are absolutely us so um so that was it was actually really good fun and then recruiting people was obviously you know critical given the type of work that we do but again we had such a overwhelmingly positive response from the market and you know what everybody was saying out there about us so that, again, was a really positive experience to be able to do that. So even though it sounds really difficult, and if you'd asked me, you know, two, three years ago, 
about setting up a company and what would you do, I would be a little bit stuck for an answer. But you can, you can do it. I think we're all living proof of that. Definitely. And I think when you when it is your baby and it's a, it's something that's so important to you and you're it's very exciting. And actually, you know, you don't get the Sunday night blues that often you may do in a corporate job. You, you're actually excited to go to work and and therefore going out there and recruiting talent or winning business or doing all the nitty gritty stuff you need to do to set a business actually doesn't become a chore. It's just something exciting and um, that uh, is going to make exactly. your business better. Yeah. And at the end of every day, I mean, for, for... I mean, just all the time, you know, I would be absolutely shattered because there was a lot to do. But we'd be like, oh, what a good day. That was a good day. And then you look at the diary for the next day and go, oh, that's going to be a fun day. Those are really good meetings. So, yeah, it's not like, oh, no, I've got a meeting with whoever. And I just know that's going to be a political nightmare or what have you. There's, there's just none of that. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's super good. It is super good fun. Good stuff. And how did you, from a client perspective, you did get some amazing press and, you know, I guess that that, that kind of helped when it comes to, to getting clients on board. But was that, did you find that a challenging process or were you just excited to get out there and, you know, t- tell the world about what you're doing differently? No, we were excited. And you have to remember, we've been doing this for more than 20 years each. So we, ha- we know a lot of clients. And I think to be fair, they were the ones our long-time clients we were the ones who gave us a hand and say, well, I'll get you a first project or I will hire you to do something. So I think they know us for a long, long time. And I think uh, there was a huge differentiator in, in getting the first clients. Great stuff. Well, you, you can't have anticipated COVID-19 when you set the business up. It's not the easiest thing to contend with in year one of a new business. So have you been navigating the uncertainty that's, that we're all facing at the moment? Day by day, <laughs> because yes. it changes That's all you every can do, day. right? <laughs> <laughs> it changes every day. I think, of course, it is hard because it is very uncertain. And, and the first thing uncertainty hits is deals. One of the first things that stops is, is deals. I think the, the, the two things that, that I, I take as highlights of, of the current situation, I think is first how the team rallied around us and rallied together to get through this together. I think we were very impressed and very touched by it, how the group became extremely important as we go through it. And the second thing, I think for us, because of what we were talking to our clients about, which was as we're doing deals, pre-deal, can we think about the future? Can we just drop the past a bit and and, and spend more time planning those companies and, 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 and realistically looking at actually how you can put them together or build them. And I think more than ever, this is going to be the norm because the past, I'm not sure you can do a lot of those numbers from past years. They're just gone and and I'm not sure they ever will be the same. So you actually will have to go as deals start popping up again, looking at the future mainly and actually how you're going to make it work and, and realistic set up those companies. So, in a certain really weird way, what we propose it makes even more sense at the moment. I think, I think that's right. I was speaking to somebody, a um, client yesterday, and we were talking about how you're going to look at deals going forward and, you know, when they get back on the deal track. And they were saying, yeah, they got some advice from somebody about, you know, uh, how would you do your underlying earnings going through this position? And I was like, your historic underlying earnings. And I was like, yeah, that's all well and good for the odd restructuring or, you know, a bit of a one-off this or we did a disposal or whatever it might be. 
But when your revenue, you know, decreases by X percent and X being greater than 50, it's forget it. You know, that's yeah. that's just not going to be relevant anymore. And you've really got to look at, as we say, a lot more towards the future and, and what does this actually mean. But I think you've got to look at the past in a different way as well. Trying to smooth this out, as we might have done historically, for me, is just not the right answer. And it's really getting underneath the fundamentals of that. And we did have a bit of a joke where, I don't know if you've ever had the misfortune to have to read a 300-page financial due diligence report. But it, it, you, will, you will find in there, I mean, it's not, you know, often, let's say often, if there's like a fire in the factory, which has caused a blip in whatever, the supply chain, whatever, you will probably read about that at least 20 times, if not 50 times in that three-page report. So we were joking the other day about, good grief, for the next three years, in these historic backward-looking financial due diligence reports, are we just going to read about COVID-19 endlessly? And that's the thing. I mean, telling somebody that it was impacted by COVID-19 is not exactly new news. So I think people have to think a lot harder and differently about how you start to get underneath the fundamentals of the business to look at it going forward. So it'll be interesting for, for our business and, you know, for the type of work that we do. For sure. No, and, and we wish you the very best with that. And it it's great to hear the team rallied around you. I, I think at JBM it was exactly the same. And I think as as founders, co-founders, it's uh it's it gives you a real sense of pride when when that happens and that everyone is very much aligned to a vision and, and, and really cares about the business. And I think that that's where I'd love to sort of lead this conversation now, talk a bit about culture and, and leadership. Um, but before I do that, I didn't have a co-founder when I set up the business and you obviously did. Uh, so, and that for me is is really interesting. And I've seen so many examples of businesses really expediting growth and have, you know, have very successful stories because of co-founders. So what made you both pair up in the first instance? Can you tell us a bit about the perks or challenges of being co-founders? I think it's the best thing about creating a business and being two. Uh, I have to say it's a blessing every day. I don't think I could have done it alone. Because you have somebody that's going through the same as you're going and that can understand your feelings, that can understand your frustrations. And we are very different. I think one of the things that helps us is that we're very different from our personal lives, from our professional lives. Meg is very financially focused. I'm very operationally focused. We have very different life stories. So we see life from a very different perspective. So I think that helps us enormously when we look at the business. And we have very open conversations between us all the time. I have to say the highlight of my day is speaking to Maggie because I know that despite we might look at things in a different way, we will come up with a common decision on it. So I think that's a huge positive. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I mean, obviously I agree. I mean, and having you can't underestimate having somebody who, and probably the only person, not even your you know, partner, husband, wife, whatever, who really understands how you're feeling and has traveled the same road as you. And, you know, so many times, and you know, um, we've spoken and or I've rung up, you know, and gone, oh, I'm not sure about this. And then Ina's super reassuring, you know, and, and, and to have that is is amazing. And having the strength of two is, is so much easier. And, yeah, I can't really think of, we are so different, but we are just so aligned, which is really good. And so... Yeah, so far. 
That's brilliant no to hear. Yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely have had the the f- first two years was just me, and it was a. It, I was starting well, to yeah. talk to myself, so uh, I could I could, I could <laughs> oh, see the huge benefit. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Don't worry about that. Good stuff. It's clear, so clear to anyone hearing this, and and that knows you that that culture is very much at the heart of uh, of EOS. So, and it's very different to this this macho culture that I think you've both referred to in some of the traditional consultancies. Maggie, I think you famously quoted that you did not want to be the new KPMG mini-me when you set the business up. So how would you describe your culture and and how does it compare to your personal experiences elsewhere? Yeah, I I mean, there was good sort of reasons of uh, the cultural issues of, of, of leaving. I mean... I think what we've tried to do and what we've always wanted to do and, and, and done anyway is have a more open culture and have real transparency and have real honesty and, and, and openness there, which sounds like lots of people use those words and you know I've used them historically. And until you really try and do that, you don't realise what a huge amount of effort that takes as a team, but also on a very personal level and individual level. But then the rewards of it are absolutely huge. And I think as well as starting to set up that culture of where we are much more open, we are much more transparent. We, The thing that drove me personally mad was the internal politics that was becoming all-pervasive. And the amount of time that people would spend on that and the game playing that went on was just excruciating for me. And also I'm not very good at it, So, <laughs> but it was really, really poor. And so trying to get rid of that through this sort of more open culture so you can't play those those games. You can't try and find a sort of way through you playing games with people, I think is, is one of the most important aspects to me because then that takes away an awful lot of the other issues around people feeling insecure or people not feeling like they can be themselves or not being respected for being different within there and feeling like they've got to fit in. You know, I think because we've been in business for so long and the, and the, the area of business that we've been in, you know how exhausting it is to constantly be trying to fit in and, you know, genuinely not um, feeling that comfortable at work. So it's it's really trying to tackle, for me, trying to tackle some of those those areas. I think a lot of people listening will be very buoyed by hearing that. I can totally see how you will be able to attract talent away from those more traditional consultancies because I think probably lots of people suffer in silence and you know get consumed with the politics and absolutely hate it just as you both did. And um, yeah, and I think I can totally see why that's your culture is so different. The interesting thing, though, that we've been learning, and again, we're still building our culture. So as I mentioned before, we're probably making a lot of mistakes as we do, is that, as Maggie said, it's a huge effort, not just from us, but from our employees also. It's not an easy thing. Everybody likes the buzzwords. If you ask anybody, do you want an open and transparent culture? Everybody's going to say yes. And everybody likes the idea of it. I'm not sure everybody likes the reality of it. Because living a, a open and, and transparent culture means that you have to tell when things are not right. You have to listen when somebody's telling, look, not really happy about this. This doesn't work for me. It's not easy to either speak up or actually listen and take in the feedback. Those are not comfortable conversations to have, right? So it's it's not an, I mean, if it was easy, everybody would have done before, right? So it's not an easy place to get to. And when you get to there, it's, it's a good place to be. 
but it takes a lot of effort and I would say a lot of maturity because you have to be open to the really uncomfortable conversations, right? Yeah, I think you make a great point. I think we, we talk in this podcast a lot about culture and, and it sounds all wonderful, but the reality is that there are very few companies that truly get it right. And I think one of the things that, you know, you're able to do from the, I guess, the, the values in which you've set the business up is sort of really work on that culture from day one and make it really clear about what why you're different and then hire people that really buy into that. But as you said, it's something that you have to keep working on. And I can see that you clearly, it's something you're both very passionate about. You You've also championed in, in the press. Uh, you've been championed in the press for bringing real diversity and inclusion into this this market, which historically is dominated. I think it's safe to say by uh, probably white males, and uh, the gender pay gap is reportedly twenty percent. So, can you tell us a bit about why that's particularly important to you, and and how you're trying to tackle it? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's it's, it's important because for us, well, a number of fronts, one through our careers we've seen a lot of wasted talent because you don't have uh, an inclusive and i think that's the absolutely critical thing to it an inclusive culture where people don't feel that they can belong and fit and aren't respected and so you get really great people leaving our industry and one of the key things for me is we're going to struggle to attract the really great people into our sector we did a chat with some business students from the Netherlands and they were sort of asking us about our careers and all the rest of it and it became perfectly clear that they were struggling to see the advantage of joining one of the big four or another large institution and seeing the value in that because they didn't see really was that really the lifestyle that they wanted was that really the culture that they wanted to work in where they feel that they would have to really change themselves to fit in and he thought but you guys are really talented people really switched on really clever really enthusiastic about business and yet you're not going to be attracted into these sorts of careers and you know that's a that's a huge worry uh, for our for our whole sector and industry mm-hmm. you know you obviously you've worked both what been in the minority in this sector and you've you've both had some tough experiences as a result what do you think that the bigger traditional firms could do better to encourage greater diversity and inclusion i think the issue with the large uh, uh corporation is that they focus on diversity instead of focus on inclusion so you focus on getting your numbers right the, the, you focus on recruiting the women and recruiting the minorities but you don't manage to keep them because they don't feel included they don't feel i'm actually part of this and it's really hard. It's not an easy thing to do, but uh, the diversity becomes more important than the inclusion. I think that's where everybody fails because they, you attract the people to start with, but they simply don't stay because at the end of the day, they feel, I just don't belong here. This is just not me because what they are doing is not what I want to do. So I think, and, and again, no, none of those things are, are, are easy. We are trying to build a team that is very different in terms of, the people they are, the personalities they bring, because I see a plus on bringing different perspectives to solve those complex problems. Because you get creative, you get people that live through a lifetime completely different from yours that can see it differently from you. So that's I see from that point of view. But without allowing people to feel like they are part of it, 
and it's not for everybody. Some it's it's not going to work for everybody in the in the end of the day. But 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 for the people that, that will stay is the people that will will belong will feel like they I belong here. Otherwise, you're just wasting your time trying to be diverse. Yeah, no, I think it's 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 a really good point. I think it's great to hear of a, a startup consultancy truly disrupting this industry and and looking to bring in a different types of people because i i'm very much of the opinion that um you need diversity in in every aspect of thought you know of background there are probably going to be people listening to this they're probably going to be women listening to this that are very inspired by your story that may be in a similar situations to you were in a big four consultancy what advice would you give to them who are maybe thinking or, or have aspirations of starting their own firm want to break out of that cycle um, or or perhaps they want to in, inspire a more inclusive culture from within their own firms? Uh, it's a hard advice you ask to give. Sorry. Uh, uh, the, first, the, the first piece of advice is if, if you want to start on your own, please do. I think we'd never looked back. It's such a liberating feeling, even in hard times like now, we look back and say, God, I would not have done. There was no one moment of regret. So the liberation that you get, the, the inspiration that you get from, from trying something new is definitely worth all the challenges and uncertainties that you have to go through. So I definitely would encourage people to do it. Trying to change things internally, that's a much harder challenge, I think, because we tried many years. You know, nobody wants to leave their company. You stay until the last second thinking, I can change this. I can make it better because there are people you like. There are things that you like. So I think it depends on the level of transformation you're trying to achieve. You can create bubbles inside those big corporations and those bubbles work in a different culture or in a different spirit and you can bring some of that change to that bubble. And if that's what people are aiming, I think that's achievable. Trying to completely transform those companies, I don't think it's a realistic goal. That's very, appreciate your honesty. Well, you have to be honest about this. And I think that's the point, that there is a lot of measurement, as we said before, about these statistics and not then the follow-up of how long people stay and how the culture actually changes. And I think if you, particularly if you want to influence and, and be an influencer in the big four, be careful that you don't get used, that you're not the poster child for this. And that as soon as you feel that you are and you're not actually making a real change and it's a little bit superficial and it gets the, the box ticked, then stop. Which is an easy thing to say, but quite difficult to do because, you know, of all the other things that we spoke about and the internal politics, et cetera. Definitely. And I think if you are that sort of person that really wants to make a difference and you're not appreciated, then get out. You know, I think I think it's exactly. safe to say you, there are lots of places, including your firm, that, that would would probably really appreciate that type of individual that can really that's very passionate and that is trying to make a difference so yeah anyone listening that like that they, they make sure you're not being taken advantage of and that you're um, you're not in the place that, <laughs> that you don't want to be we're sadly getting towards the end and Maggie and Nina and I've loved our chat I, I just wanted to ask three sort of wrap-up questions that we always like to ask our guests and, and the first one unsurprisingly is around mentorship um, which has had a an impact on me and and it's obviously uh, what we focus on in this podcast and so what does mentorship mean to you both and I, I think our listeners would love to hear if you have any mentors yourself and how that may have helped your career I mean I've never actually you know when I was reflecting on this had a formal mentor as it were 
throughout my career. And I, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But what I have had is a lot of people as different points in different times and in different situations uh, help me and mentor me and actively sort them out. And and some of those now have been very long term. And so I, I knew them, you know, for the last 20 years. And they're really helpful because even if your interaction is fairly limited, you really get to you do still get to know a person. And the insight that they can reflect back on me is really good. And actually, then when it becomes such a long term relationship like that, it works both ways, actually. And then that's that's when it's actually a very productive uh, relationship. So although I didn't seek those out actively, probably if I had my time again, I probably would be a little bit more proactive about it because it's invaluable. You can't possibly know yourself. And having that person to point out a few of these um, things, good and bad, is is absolutely invaluable. As Maggie said, I, I also never had a long-time mentor that I kept. I used a lot of my clients as mentor, interesting enough, because I think that the characteristics of what I do where I stay in a client up to a year, so it's a long time, and we always will be interesting enough how this affects our business, but we always sit at their companies and work at their companies with them. So you get a very close relationship. And I got the opportunity to work very closely to a lot of CEOs and, and people in, in companies, which I was really inspired by their leadership styles, by how they actually were building something different or doing something different. So I used a lot of my clients throughout my career as mentors to bring perspective into what I was trying to build. I think anyone, any sort of consultants listening that's a that's a great way to you know really be inspired and learn from from people that have been you know at the very top of their industry so that's that's great thank you both tell us a bit about the year ahead it sounds like you've well you've achieved a huge amount of success in such a short amount of time what do the next 12 months have in store for eos and, and also for yourselves personally well first months to survive <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah yeah <laughs> be very honest how we are going to survive this uh, I think, of course, the pandemic has delayed some of our plans because we had plans to go global to, to other countries this year. I don't know where we stand in those plans. We'll probably hold off to 2021 before we can actually do that. So it has put a stop in our plans. But I also think because of the crisis and the economic crisis that will follow it, I think there will be a lot of interesting deals in the market. So we'll concentrate on those and, and see how we can do things differently. Yeah, I think the, the, the upside of the current situation is that you can question and challenge anything that you thought before, because why wouldn't you, right? Why would, You can change anything at this point. So also for us to make some changes to the way we, we're trying to, to, to position EOs and the projects we're trying to do and the clients we want to have. Fantastic. And what about you, Maggie? Any, any particular things that you're excited about in the next 12 months? Well, yeah, who knows what the next 12 months will look like <laughs> is, a bit, is a bit my reaction. But, you know, as we said before, we, we stayed in deals for so long because we like the complexity, we like the challenge, we like having to understand very quickly new situations and help pe people figure out their problems. And there is, I mean, this is a, a time when, when that sort of skill is needed more and more. So I just see there's, a lot of interesting, very interesting and challenging work coming up. And like Ina says, you know, everything can change. Everything has changed. So it can continue to change. And all the old norms 
Like you can't work part time, you can't work from home, you can't do this, you can't do that. Well, actually, you find you can. So hopefully, actually, the 12 months gives us the opportunity to keep this mindset and mentality of actually you can do anything. So, you know, let's not let that be a blocker to the way that we work or the way that we live. Good stuff. And final question for any of our listeners that are currently considering a career move, which I think there are lots of people that have time on their hands to maybe think about it, whether they actually pulled the trigger is another thing. But um, what final piece of advice would you both leave them with? Well, I, I would say don't overthink it, right? Because one thing we've learned, it all changed anyway, and pretty much on a daily basis, and that's that's without the crisis. So, yeah, have a think about it. And as I said earlier, it's a it's a personal journey. But trying to plan for everything, trying to overthink every point, well, well A, it'll just drive you absolutely crazy, and it won't happen anyway. So get a good enough plan and then just do it. Great, great advice. What about you, Ina? My advice is to get out of the negativity circle, cycle. I think we, we probably stayed on it too long because you've stayed in this environment where everything's hard and you're negative. And we see friends, right, and people that we, we, we know from different places in that cycle. And that's a, such a non-productive cycle that you spend hours discussing. But this person said that and they meant that. And it's it, to get out of that cycle. And as Meg said, put a plan together. And your plan probably not going to work. You're going to make mistakes, but just go and move. You know, put a move onto it. Put a put a a positive spin to it because I think staying on that negative cycle is probably the most damaging thing to do to yourself, right? Yeah, I think that's a, a brilliant place to leave this. I'm all for positivity. So um, thank you both so much for your time. It's been wonderful having you on the 40 Minute Mentor and we wish you all the very best for the, the months and, and years ahead. I'm very excited to see what you both will achieve. Thanks very much. Great, thanks a lot. It was fun. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you, it was great. Cheers. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.